following message is by Pastor Peter Cho of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Last week, I went to a daddy-daughter camp in the UP, which is the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. There was no indoor plumbing there, no electricity, no Wi-Fi or cell service, and this is very intentional at the campsite there, because the goal is for the dads to have no distractions, right? Nothing else to take them away from giving undivided attention to uh, their daughters at this particular week. Uh, And it it was actually really awesome, you know. um, I, I wasn't really looking forward to the prospect of of hanging out with a bunch of 10-year-old girls and their dads in the middle of nowhere. But I learned so many new things about my daughter, Sayla, um, I didn't, that I didn't even know, you know, through our time together. And we spent nine hours driving there and back, too. And it was just a great time of bonding. And out at this campsite, you know, they have all these different activities, like these huge climbing walls and ropes courses. And they're really designed to stretch you and and hopefully create some good memories for you and and your child, right? And the whole week we were there, we kept hearing from the other campers that the most, about this this really challenging activity, and it it was actually like, no one wanted to do it. And it was was the monkey bars uh, at the ropes course, okay? And these are monkey bars that are 35 feet in the air. It's like three and a half stories high. And you have to swing across these bars, about 15 feet of them. And every time someone would talk about it, my daughter, Sayla, would be like, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) She's just telling me, just so you know, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) And like any good dad, I had to press her to try it and overcome her fears. And she kept saying no until I promised her a Kit Kat. And she she tried. And I promised her another one if she finished it. And it's amazing what a candy bar will do to motivate a (laughs) 10-year-old. So she tried it. And I want to show you the video of it real quickly. Uh, This is when she made it to the other side. And nice please don't, job, please don't mind my yeah. cheering. Almost. Keep it coming. Keep it coming. Yeah. There you go. All right, rest. Seventy-five percent. All right. Great job. Almost there. Great job. How far down is that? Whoa! Look at that. <laughs> That's thirty-five. Thirty-five feet. Good drop. Yep. <laughs> You're doing awesome, Salem. Almost there. Oh, you're going for it, Eight girl. more bars. You got it, Sayla. Do it. Deep breath. Go. 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 Keep it going. 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 One more. Keep going. One more. One more. One more. Push it. Push it. You got it. Awesome. Yeah. I was a very proud papa. She did great, and she was, she was actually the only kid to complete it at that point in that day. And, and uh, you know, of course, after she finished it, she looked at me, and she started egging me on, like, are you going to do it now? And, <laughs> and, you know, to be honest, I was actually feeling pretty good about myself. The day before, there, were, there was a climbing wall, and one of, the, one of the dads in our cabin challenged me to, to who can climb it up the fastest, and he was actually a lieutenant in the Marines. I beat him <laughs> up the climbing wall. And he did these monkey bars, and I was like, oh, I can, I can do that. And 
I got on there, and I didn't even make it halfway to that little bracket in the middle there. And I was like, there's no way I'm going to even get to the other side. <laughs> so I'm just sitting on that middle part. I'm like, I don't even know if I can get back. <laughs> and so I, I started, and my strength just completely gave out. I'm just hanging on this bar, and I'm like, I, I can't go any further. And I tried to, like, skip to the next bar, and I totally failed, and I, I totally tested, you know, the integrity of that harness. <laughs> and it was so humiliating. And, you know, when you're hanging there, you're, you're just like, you feel like just a dead carcass, and they're, like, reeling you in like you're in a meat locker or something. <laughs> Everyone's watching you. <laughs> and... Um, what can I say? The spirit was willing, but the flesh was weak. <laughs> the problem is I have too much flesh. But, you know, the best part of being a pastor is that you can take your most embarrassing moments and you can redeem them as sermon illustrations. It's really great. <laughs> but, you know, I think those monkey bars are a metaphor for life. Because I think there are some of you in this room that you're halfway through your own set of monkey bars. You know, you're in a life situation, you've encountered a problem, and maybe you were initially convinced you could finish it, and now you suddenly realize this is, this is way more than you can handle. This is way beyond your strength. And you don't have the strength to go on. And you've lost all hope. And maybe you're there because someone forced you into this place, you know, like I forced Salem. <laughs> Maybe you're there because, like me, you foolishly thought you could get by in your own strength. But regardless of how you got there, now you're hanging on a string. You're dangling on a hope and a prayer. And today's sermon is about the power of hope. It's about claiming one of the greatest promises in Scripture, which instructs us on how we discover God's strength and press on when we have exhausted our own. And it comes from one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah is one of my favorite books in the Bible. And what I love about it is that every time I get into it, it has a way of just putting me in my proper place, like down low. And putting God in his proper place, like high upon his throne. And this was a book that was largely written in the 8th century B.C. during the pre-exilic period of Judah's history before the people of Judah were conquered and exiled and shipped out to Babylon. But Isaiah's vision and his message stretches into the period of the Babylonian exile in the 6th century B.C. too, 200 years later, and to all of God's people until the end of time as you read through it. And, you know, the early church and the traditional view was that Isaiah authored this book. However, there's been more recent debate about whether the prophet wrote all of it because the vocabulary and the style when you read it changes quite a bit in later sections of the book. But without getting into all the weeds, let me just say that Jesus affirms the authorship of Isaiah in the Gospels. And so if you don't believe in Jesus, then you're going to have bigger problems than who wrote the book of Isaiah, right? But the reason the style and the tone changes as this book progresses is because it's speaking to different time periods and, and audiences as it moves forward. And, you know, the oracles that we find in the first 39 chapters speak to the pre-exilic period of Jerusalem's history, which is when Isaiah was actually alive, to the people that were his contemporaries. And the central theme in this first section of the 39 chapters can be summarized in one word as just judgment, God's judgment. 
This is what Isaiah was proclaiming. The leaders and the lay people of the southern kingdom of Judah, they're guilty of idolatry and rebellion, and God in his mercy for 39 chapters is warning them of the impending judgment that's coming if they don't turn from their wicked ways. And he tells them very specifically how this judgment would come. It would come in the form of invading enemy nations, the first being Assyria to the north and second Babylon as well, just as God predicted. But the tone and the style shifts beginning with Isaiah chapter 40, which is what we're going to look at today, because now Isaiah is not prophesying to the people of his day. He's given a vision for a future generation, one who would be enduring the judgments pronounced in the first 39 chapters, right? A people who would be living in exiles as captives in Babylon. And this is a time when there's a deep sense of hopelessness among God's people. And all of these pagan nations who didn't, just godless nations surrounding Judah are, are stronger than them. And the people are, are there just wondering, like, how could a sovereign God allow this to happen? Like, where is he? Has he rejected us as his people? Is that part of our judgment? You know, this morning as part of the pre-service prayer, um, our brother Andy um, read from the book, or the, from the book of Psalm, chapter 73. And as he was reading it, it, it just struck me how, I think this is how the people of Judah felt during this time. You know, as all these other enemy nations are prospering and growing and becoming a threat to them while they're languishing, so I want to read it for you. I think it just captures the sentiment so well. It says in Psalm 73, verse 3, 4, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and they clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice, with arrogance. They threaten oppression. Their mouths they claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance, and they say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. Do you feel like this? Like you're tr- you think you're trying to do it God's way, trying to live faithfully, You're supposed to be under his protection and care, but there are those around you who who aren't doing the same, who aren't following God, and yet they're prospering far more than you. And it makes you feel like God is not real or God doesn't care. And it makes you lose hope. And you know, the holy city of Jerusalem and the temple had been destroyed and the best and the brightest of Judah had been shipped off and taken as captives to Babylon. And so all hope is lost. And you may recall that Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they lived during this time. And their stories are told within that context as captives in Babylon. And this is, this is the backdrop of Isaiah chapter 40. And now this famous prophet is called by God to give a new message, a new message of hope and consolation to his people. And it's here in the brokenness, in this hopeless situation that God, through Isaiah, speaks these amazing words of hope in Isaiah 40 to a people who have lost hope in in God and God's purpose for them. 
You know, this whole chapter is amazing, but I'm going to just begin from verse 28. It says this. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. The creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. And his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. So people who have lost all hope, who have grown tired of weary, of waiting, God speaks these words of hope. He's not forgotten his people though they have forgotten him. And it's here that God opens with these two rhetorical questions. He says, do you not know? Have you not heard? They should know. They have already heard. All these truths about God are not new revelations. Isaiah is not teaching them anything new. In fact, much of this was already spoken of in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah. All of this was already given by the prophets that came before him. He was simply reminding them of what they had forgotten in their hopeless state. The Lord is the everlasting God. The people of Judah had placed their hope in themselves. And they refused to trust God and his power And they aligned themselves with pagan nations that God warned them against because they could see the rising threat of Assyria and after that, Babylon pressing down upon them. And this is why in Isaiah 31.1, before chapter 40, it says, God gives them a warning. He says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many or in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. Woe to those. The people of Judah fell into the same trap that we often do. They would rather trust what they could see and touch and feel than the one that they could not. What is the object of your hope today? Who are you hoping in? What have you placed your hope upon? Is it like the people of Judah? Is it only the things that you can see and touch? That seem real. I don't think we're far different from them. You know, we place our hope in ourselves. And for most of us, I think if we're really honest, our hope is built upon our own strength, our own wisdom, our own ability to engineer and manipulate the right outcomes for our life. And we say we believe in God, but really we only trust in ourselves. Or we place our hope in others, right? We look to our spouse or a significant other. And if, if we can't find it there, then, then we put this burden on our friends and our children to be the source of our hope and our happiness. And we crush them under the weight of that expectation. Or we're disappointed when they can't deliver. Or we place our hope in things, right? Good food and drink, nice cars and nice homes in, in the right school districts. We put our hope in savings accounts and college funds and retirement plans. And those things are not evil in and of themselves, but they are evil when we place our hope in them for security or ultimate pleasure. And God through Isaiah says to his people then and he says to his people today, hope in me. 
Hope in me, not in yourself. Not in anyone else. Not in any other thing. Hope in me. You know, hope is defined in the dictionary as a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. But what Isaiah is calling us to is not just a hope, like a dictionary definition of hope. Isaiah is calling us to hope in the Lord. And this is fundamentally different from just hope. You know, hope in the secular world is just waiting with expectation, right? Just waiting with expectation. But hoping in the Lord is waiting with patient expectation for God to act in His way and in His time because I trust in His power and His promise and I have faith in His wisdom and His will. Hoping in the Lord is waiting with patient expectation for God to act in His way and in His time because I trust in His power and His promise and I have faith in His wisdom and His will. The people of Judah clearly were hoping for a better life in a situation than they found themselves in, largely because of their own doing. Their temple was in ruins. Their city was destroyed. Their people were held captive. They were living under oppression and bondage. Their leaders were doing everything in their own power, but they were not trusting in God. And their their hope ultimately did not lie with him. They chased false idols. They built alliances with pagan nations and God that God had warned them not to trust. And they fell further into hardship and hopelessness as a result. And they did not have the strength to go on. And then Isaiah 40 in verse 31 tells us something very simple but also very profound. It says this, But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. To see the power of God at work in your life, you must place your hope fully upon Him. Not upon anyone else. Not upon yourself. Not upon anything else. Hoping in the Lord is waiting with a patient expectation for God to act in His way and His time. Not on our time. You cannot separate the nature of hope from the element of time, right? They just go hand in hand. And many translations of the Bible, including the ESV, what I read for you is the NIV, which I grew up uh, memorizing. But the ESV translates uh, this verse as those who wait on the Lord of those who hope in the Lord. God is inviting us to trust Him because He holds time in His hands. He stands outside of time, unlike any of us. And He wants His people to stand firm in this and to trust Him. In Isaiah 44, verse 7 and 8, says this, Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Everything that God predicted through Isaiah in the first 39 chapters before their exile has come to pass. Because the people of Judah did not heed his warning. And he warned them not to trust Egypt as an ally. 
He warned them not to continue in their rebellion or Assyria would overtake them. Over and over again, Isaiah, God proves himself with prediction after prediction, prophecy after prophecy. And he's basically challenging all, saying, who else can do this? Who can predict the future except the one who holds it? I think that's what sets the Bible apart from any other holy book. All these fulfilled prophecies testified to a God who stands outside of time, who knows the end from the beginning. And because he knows it all, from beginning to end, we can trust his plan. We can trust his purpose for the universe and for our lives. And we are called to hope, not because God hopes. He already knows. And because he knows, we can trust in his knowledge and in his timing because his perspective is eternal. Our perspective is this, so small. And so often we want to play God. We, want, we think we know it all, right? And we want to take matters into our own hands because we can't wait any longer. And Scripture is filled with men and women who choose to act in their own will instead of waiting on God's will. And it never ends well, does it? Look at Abraham and Sarah. God promised them a child. And it took a long time. They were waiting and waiting. And they are like, all right. I guess we got to do something about it. So they took the Egyptian maidservant, again, Egypt, named Hagar. She acts as a surrogate. And Ishmael is born because they can't wait on the promise of God any longer that a son would be born to him. But God still fulfills his promise, not in their timing, but his own through the son Isaac. Look at Esau selling his birthright to Jacob because he couldn't wait to eat a pot of stew. The people of Israel waiting for Moses on Mount Sinai, thinking he had died. And so what do they do? They rebel and they build a golden calf. Moses striking the rock in the wilderness. Job's wife telling him to curse God and die. Saul making an offering instead of waiting for Samuel. The prodigal son who could not wait for his inheritance. So many examples of this in the Bible. And it never ends well. And perhaps there are some of you that are in this place. You know, I know I've been there. You're hoping for things to change in your life, but you're not really hoping in the Lord. And you know this because you're tired of waiting. You're tired of waiting on God. And you want to take matters into your own hands and act in your own flesh, and it just makes matters worse, not better. Hoping in the Lord is waiting with patient expectation for God to act in His way and in His time. Why? Because I trust in His promise and His power. You know, confession, I'm, I'm, I'm a control freak. Um, I like to be in control. I like to have all my ducks in a row. I don't know if it's because I used to be in accounting. But everything needs to be like, you know, debits and credits for me. And you should see my Excel spreadsheets that I build when I'm, I plan a vacation. It drives my wife Kim crazy. <laughs> I have like every hour planned. I like being in tro- Control. But, you know, when my wife Kim was diagnosed with cancer six years ago, I suddenly realized what an illusion that is, control. I thought I was in control of everything. I had great health care, I had everything. And suddenly I realized my wife is on the brink of, of death, possibly, and I had zero control of anything, any of it. And this epiphany spiraled me into this, this anxiety that I had never experienced before. Even after she was in remission, it just, what if the cancer comes back? What if I get sick? What if I lose my job and lose our insurance? 
What if? What if? What if? And I literally could not sleep at night. And I was taking prescription sleeping pills. It didn't even phase me. I couldn't sleep. And I was up all night just running all these crazy scenarios in my head. And fear was just overwhelming me. And when you're not getting sleep, like, things just go from bad to worse. (laughs) It just affects you every way. And I was so incredibly tired. I was so weary. Even youths grow tired and weary. Even young men stumble and fall. And I was falling. I was free-falling. You know, there was no end in sight. And for the first time in my life, I realized I had no control. And it scared me to death. But if Isaiah tells us anything, Isaiah tells us God is in control. He is sovereign over all creation. He created it. Nothing gets by him. Nothing happens that he does not allow And on Isaiah 46, verses 9 through 11, says this, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Not just some of it, all of it. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Because he is all-knowing, and because he is all-powerful, he is sovereign over all creation, and he is in control. Even the youngest and the most fit among us has a point where we wear down and we tire. But God assures us that he does not. He will not grow tired and weary. Not only that, he gives strength to the weary, and he increases the power of the weak. And Isaiah is just filled with declarations of God's power. And this is not because God is like some egocentric deity. He's like, look at me, look at me, look how strong, wonderful, and powerful I am. That's not, that's not why he does that. He's reminding his people that he's far stronger than any en- enemy. Any enemy they're facing or will face, he's the creator of the ends of the earth. You know, uh, last week, one night before bed at, at this daddy-daughter camp, Sayla and I went out, um, and we laid on this boat dock to stargaze. And it was just, it was one of those rare moments in life where, you know, even as it's happening, you, you're like, I'm never going to forget this moment, in the moment. And it, it was unbelievable. It was just not a cloud in the sky. The moon wasn't even, I couldn't even find the moon. And... You could see satellites flying across the sky. It's just it's not even blinking, just this light going across the sky. You could see shooting stars. You could even see the Milky Way. Do you have a picture of that Milky Way? I can't put one in there. There you go. That's not an actual photo, but that's a photo of the Milky Way. My, my camera, like I said, I didn't have an iPhone there. The battery was dead. And I told Sailor that night that I, as I was looking, you know, I was looking at the stars. I, I told her I love looking at stars. Because even though it makes me feel incredibly small, it makes God seem incredibly big. He created all of it. Because he made all this, he, and he just spoke it into existence. And the next time you see a starry night, just go out and just soak it in. 
and just let it overwhelm you. Let it humble you. You know, I think the book of Isaiah is kind of like stargazing in that way. When you read through it, it just gives us a picture of a God so majestic, so powerful, so wise and wonderful that it makes you feel so incredibly small. And it just humbles you, and he created all of it. And why does God want to give them hope? Why does God want to speak hope into his people in this moment? Because hope is a powerful, powerful thing. Especially when you're running out of strength. We often underestimate just how powerful hope is. You know, back in the 1950s, there was a scientist named Dr. Kurt Richter. And he ran an experiment with a bunch of rats. And you might think this was very cruel. I I think it was. But he took a bunch of wild Norwegian rats and he placed them in tubs full of water. And within within 15 minutes, all of them would die from drowning. And then he tweaked the experiment. He took another group of the same rats and he tried it again, but just before the moment they were about to drown, like the 14th minute, he would rescue them out of the water. He would let them recover for a little bit and then he would put them right back in the water. And he did it a few times before his final test. And in the final test, he took these same rats that he, and he placed them in the water again. And this time he didn't pull them out until they drowned. Guess how long these rats swam before they drowned? They swam for two to three days. Days. These same rats that would give up and drown in 15 minutes were given just the slightest hope of salvation, now found the strength to swim up to 240 times longer than they could before. It's incredible. This is the power of hope. And God wants us to hope because he wants to bring that kind of power into our lives. And not just any power. He wants to give us his power. But listen, his, his power can only come by hoping in him. This verse doesn't just say those who hope will renew their strength. It says those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. That's the key. When we misplace our hope, we miss out on his power. And if you're not sure why you feel so spent, why your soul feels so weary, maybe it's because you have hope, but your hope is not in the Lord. Isaiah 40 tells us in verse 31, those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. You know, I, I love this verse. It's my favorite verse in the Old Testament. And I don't know if it's because I love animals. I love animal shows. I've seen like every single animal show on Netflix. And eagles are actually my favorite bird. And, you know, if you ever notice, birds fly, but eagles soar, right? No one says, wow, look at that robin soar, right? <laughs> Only eagles soar, right? And what, what makes an eagle's flight so unique? If you observe an eagle in flight, it's not just the amazing heights that they reach, but really it's the effortlessness with which they rise. It makes them so amazing. Without even really flapping their wings, they just seem to defy the laws of gravity. How does this happen? It happens through something called wind thermals. Wind thermals. And um, I wrote a whole paper on this in, <laughs> when I was in seminary about eagles. Maybe I'll do a sermon on eagles one day, but 
In this book, Eagles, Masters of the Sky, the author Rebecca Grambo, she, she says this, Eagles use wind thermals, these rising currents of warm air and updrafts generated by rough terrain, such as valley edges or mountain slopes, to help them soar with minimum wing flapping, thereby saving precious energy. Robert Ohlendorf, another eagle watcher, wrote in his book describing this rare ability to mount and rise. He says, I watched the perched eagle to take flight from the cliff top and began, and began searching for lifting air currents. Air near the, near the ground warmed and rose in large bubbles called thermals made visible by the female eagle climbing effortlessly. 500, 700, still many feet higher. And these observations, I think, reveal a, number, a couple of interesting things. You know, unlike other birds, eagles do not rely on the force generated from their wings to reach great heights, right? They rely on a different source, the wind, and not just any wind, but these wind thermals, these rising currents of warm air. And although these wind currents are invisible, the eagle searches for them. And the eagle sees their effects, and over time, she gains an intimate knowledge of these these thermals and the understanding allows the eagle to fly far higher than any other bird and with far less physical effort. I don't think it's any accident that the landscape which generates the best updraft and the most effortless flights are not flat grassy areas or open waters, but it's, as the author states, rough terrain, such as valley edges or mountain slopes. That's where you find the, the real wind thermals. And although these wind currents are invisible, the eagle searches for them, right? And it finds them, and it rides high on them. And, you know, I think our natural instinct is to avoid at all costs these rough terrain, these valley edges, these mountain slopes. But it's in these very places that the thermal wind currents are greatest and where if we understand and we wait and trust the winds, that we will rise the highest. You know, the heavier and the more mature the eagle is, the more dependent it is on the lift provided by the thermals. Is it any surprise that the most mature and strongest eagles rely on the winds the most? Something they cannot see. Something we cannot see. Isaiah 64, 4 says this, No eye has seen a God besides thee who works for those who wait for him. When we hope in the Lord, we put God to work, and he's working for us. When we hope in the Lord, we mount up and soar on wings like eagles. It's God who's doing the work. It's not, it is God who's lifting us up. This is why we no longer feel tired and weary when we hope in him. Hoping in the Lord is waiting with patient expectation for God to act in his way and in his time because I trust in his power and his promise and have faith in his wisdom and his will. Do you believe God's wiser than you? Do you believe that he knows more than you do? Isaiah 40 says, His understanding no one can fathom. We cannot fathom even his will or his ways. God may not share the small and specific hopes you may have today, right? But believe me when I say that everything that you are ultimately hoping for Happiness and wholeness, security and acceptance, purpose and meaning, life and love, God wants to give you. It may not come in the package you expect or in the time or manner that you want, but this is why he calls us to hope in him. 
you know, later in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, there's a picture that's given of who and how the people of God would be saved. And it begins to emerge in, in this chapter. And this is arguably the most profound messianic prophecy in all of the Old Testament. The 53rd chapter of Isaiah, we are told of a suffering servant. And I want to read some of it for you. It says this, He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand after he has suffered. He will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. It's an amazing chapter. I think it's the most remarkable chapter in the whole Old Testament. Centuries before Christ even is born, this picture is so perfect. Redemption and restoration would not come from their own strength or wisdom. It would not come from neighboring pagan nations or false idols. It would have to come from God. It would come from God. And it would come in a way no one, no one ever saw coming. It would come through his son. And it would come, and he would come in the form of a suffering servant. And his understanding, no one can fathom. You see, hoping in the Lord is not just hoping for the Lord's help. Hoping in the Lord is hoping for the Lord himself. I'm going to close with a, a brief video again, but um, this is a, one of my favorite movies of all time. It's the film Shawshank Redemption, which was based off a Stephen King novel. And, um, you know, I think guys usually don't like emotional, tear-jerking dramas, but this one works for some reason <laughs> because I think the film captures this idea of hope and male friendships like no other. I, I call it Beaches for Men, Shawshank Redemption. But the movie opens with this man, the main character named Andy Dufresne. He's played by Tim Robbins. And Andy's falsely convicted of killing his wife and her lover, and he's sentenced to two life terms in prison. He finds himself at Shawshank. And he endures all the horrors of prison life from other inmates who they're just violating him, abusing him. You know, a corrupt prison warden bullies him and uses him. And Andy is nearly broken in that system. But he befriends a man named Red, played by Morgan Freeman. And together they form a deep bond and they help each other just navigate all the trials and tribulations together in this prison and they find strength to endure by dreaming of a life outside of those prison walls and you know one day in the middle of the movie Andy confides with his good friend Red this dream, his dream of escaping prison 
he would, and he tells him about this place, a specific coastal town in Mexico, Zihuatanejo. And he tells Red, that's where I'm going. And he's dreaming with Red about it, an old sailboat that he would, he would get when he's out there, that he would restore, and that he would use it as a charter boat. He would live, it, live out there for the rest of his, his life. And he asked Red to join him. If there ever a way for them to both find a way out of prison, to join him in this place. And, you know, Red rebukes him for entertaining this pipe dream. He says, it's useless to hope for such a thing. And towards the end of the movie, Andy, he is just the best, it's just so great. Andy ingeniously orchestrates this dramatic escape from prison, right, while Red, he continues in prison, all the while missing his good friend, and day by day just losing hope that he would ever be set free. And then one unexpected day, Red is released, and he tries to reassimilate back into civilian life, but he's, he's really struggling. And he even considers ending his life. And then he remembers the promise of his good friend, Andy. And he decides that take us to take that step of faith and violate his parole. And the movie conclu- concludes with like one of the best s- endings in cinematic history. <laughs> so I'm going to show it for you. It's just two minutes if you just uh, watch it. I can barely sit still or hold a thought in my head. I think it's the excitement only a free man can feel. A free man at the start of a long journey whose conclusion is uncertain. I hope I can make it across the border. I hope to see my friend and shake his hand. I hope the Pacific is as blue as it has been in my dreams. You know, I, I love how the film captures this idea of hope. And this idea of hope is not just a desired outcome, but as a restored relationship. A picture of them hugging on the beach, it like gets me every time. <laughs> I don't know if it's the violins or what. But 
it's such a picture of the gospel. You know, when we come to the New Testament, the idea of hope is unveiled and fleshed out into what is described by the Apostle Paul as the blessed hope and by the Apostle Peter as a living hope. Hope is no longer reduced to simply a desired outcome. Hope is a divine being. Hope is Jesus Christ. In Titus 2, 11 through 13, Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, the apostles and the people of God struggled just like we struggle. But they were not just longing for redemption and restoration. They were longing for his return. This is where they found the strength to go on and the hope to persevere. We struggle to find strength in this life when we place our hope in ourselves. But God patiently reminds us of his wisdom, power, his love, so that we might place our hope in him alone and in doing so, discover his strength. And when we come to this place, we realize that the greatest reward of hoping in the Lord is not just his help, it is himself. Let's bow our heads together as we close. And I I want to challenge each of us in this room. What what is it that you are hoping for? You know, if I passed out cards before today's sermon asking you all to fill in the blank to this phrase, how would you finish it? I hope blank. What are you hoping for? What were you hoping for yesterday? I think the truth is, if we're really honest, we hope too small, don't we? We we hope the Cubs will win the World Series. We hope our 401k will continue to grow. We hope our kids will make varsity when they get to high school. We hope we fit into our jeans after Thanksgiving dinner. We hope we get that next promotion at work. We hope, we hope, we hope too small. But God tells us through his word, by his spirit, to hope in the Lord. Let Christ be the greatest longing of your heart. Let his will become your will. Wait on him. Trust in him. Surrender yourself to his wisdom, his power, his control. And make him your greatest hope in this life and you will not be disappointed in the life that is to come. This is God's promise to you. This is the promise of Isaiah 40. This is 
really the only hope for anyone who is tired and weary, who is in need of strength. Let's take a few minutes and just let the Word minister to our souls. Let the Holy Spirit convict us, speak into us. Let us confess if we need to confess. Let us praise if we need to praise. We have an amazing God. Amazing strength. So much strength, He wants to share it with you. His strength, His power. Let's take a few minutes and pray, and our worship team will will lead us in closing songs.